Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Hey there, I've got an interesting interview for you today with Dr. Dale Tuggy. Tuggy is an analytic philosopher who works on world religions and the doctrine of the Trinity. He has a PhD from Brown University, an MA from Claremont, and a BA from Biola University. He works as a professor of philosophy at the State University of New York at Fredonia. He runs a website called trinities.org where he blogs and hosts the podcasts of the same name. Look, if you have any interest in Christian theology or philosophy, you got to check out his podcast, trinities.org. It's phenomenal. I've listened to just about every episode. Dr. Tuggy also wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on the Trinity, an excellent read, including a very informative supplemental reading called Unitarianism. I have known Dale for about four years and really appreciate his honest-hearted, analytical, yet charming approach. In what follows, I interview him about his own journey of faith, how he became a Christian, what got him into philosophy, how he came to doubt the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, and where he sees the future of the biblical Unitarian movement going. Here now is our conversation. Welcome to Restitutio, Dale. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm a big fan of the podcast and really pleased to be here with you. I thought today we would talk a little bit about your own journey and what got you to where you are today as far as your particular interests. So to start off, tell me a little bit about your background. Did you grow up as a Christian? Uh, Were you passionate about your faith from a young age? Did you experience a conversion at some point? Yeah, my parents actually met on an evangelical mission trip, like not a one-week one, but a several-month one. They were part of Operation Mobilization that was going to Western Europe in the 60s. And uh, they basically had an evangelical background. And then in the late 60s, they got involved in the charismatic movement. And so I was born in 1970 when they were part of this very close-knit, independent, charismatic church. And yeah, I I always kind of did take my faith seriously. When I was uh, just shy of eight years old in 1978, I prayed a prayer with my pastor and was born again. And then I was baptized by him in a, on a hot summer day in August in Texas. <laughs> and um, I always took it seriously. Rebelling just didn't really seem like a good idea to me. I mean, I rebelled in my own little ways, you know, listening to Christian rock and things like that that my dad didn't <laughs> like. But like really, like, you know, becoming a partier or leaving the faith just never seemed like a good idea. And when I was in high school, I got very curious, you know, I started to run into a few Mormons and people in other religions. And so I wanted to study about that. I was, you know, listening to apologetics radio shows and reading a few books. And I kind of started to, you know, study the Bible as best I could at the age of 15 or 16. And yeah, so it always kind of stuck. I did have a conversion experience, but I was pretty young, so I don't remember all that much about it. Okay. Cool. So as as you continued in your faith, at some point you decided to study philosophy. What led you to that conclusion? Well, I was interested in arguing because I had been interested in apologetics. 
although that's not usually very good arguing in most cases. And I went off to this Christian college, uh, Biola University in Southern California. I think my parents were pleased to see me go to a Christian college. Uh-huh. And uh, I had no idea what I was going to do there. When I was in high school, I really loved history and English, but maybe I wasn't sure I wanted to you know, go into that. And when I was a freshman, in freshman orientation, I met my now wife. Okay. So you know what they say about Christian college? You, uh, it's like a shoe factory. You show up the big heel, you get your soul fixed, and you leave in pairs. <laughs> so I've never heard that one. <laughs> that's a crusty old Christian college joke. That's a good one. Probably goes back to the '60s or something. But yeah, so I, I wasted no time pairing up. Um, I started dating my uh, girlfriend around October, my freshman year, and then I didn't, I didn't want to be away from her for the whole winter break over January, so I signed up for a January term class, and it was an introduction to philosophy. Uh-huh. And it was taught by this wonderful old guy. Uh, he passed away, I think, around 2003. His name was Delbert Hansen, and he looked just like Isaac Asimov. This oh, kind of, really? This Classic. Nordic guy with some white sideburns and kind of distinguished-looking. Uh, and he was just a very open-minded, kind, encouraging person and just philosophy just immediately excited me i realized that the things that i had liked before about english and history was really the ideas that were involved the different worldviews and things like that and when i discovered philosophy i wow here's a here's a field where they talk about that stuff all the time and it's not four percent it's 80 proof you know it's it's in straight form so there's history involved and there's literature involved in it, but yeah, it was just incredibly exciting right away. So I, I became a philosophy major in my second semester of my freshman year, and I never really looked back. I got three degrees in it. Um, well, no, I did look back because there, there was a point where when I was an undergraduate, I assumed that all serious spiritual Christians go to seminary and enter the ministry. So I wondered if I should do that for a while. But then, no, I wanted to be a philosophy professor. Yeah. Cool. So that was quite a journey then, going through each of these different schools. At what time did you start looking into the Trinity? Was that after you had already begun teaching or during the the process? It was when I was at Brown University, really. Although I remember having a conversation with another philosopher when I was a master's student, he was just asking me some basic questions about does the Trinity make sense? And I was just serving up some really lazy off the shelf answers to the effect that, well, you'd expect it to be a mystery. So that it's a mystery is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not like I don't know what I'm talking about. And he, he seemed unmoved by that. He was a nice guy. He just, he wasn't really buying it. And I sort of filed that away like, Hmm, my my little off-the-shelf answers didn't seem so brilliant as I was expecting them to be. Yeah. Um, but I didn't I didn't read anything about it or really look into it. You know, looking back on my my church life and my Christian life, the Trinity per se didn't play a big part of it. It's just there in the background. Yeah, it was really the deity of Christ. Basically, just thinking that Jesus is God in disguise. 
um, without without going into all the classical two natures defenses and all that type of thing. Um, in in American evangelicalism, they they think the Trinity and the deity of Christ are pretty much the same thing. But functionally, every day in the sermons, it's really the deity of Christ that comes up. Right. So you know, I never heard a sermon. I think about the Trinity per se. I noticed when it came up in a in a few hymns, and I kind of wondered about that a little bit. But nobody was really pushing triune God as such. It was all, yeah, like you said, in the background. So uh, what happened at Brown was a, a leading Christian philosopher, a man named Richard Swinburne. Uh, he's just, you know, probably one of the two greatest living philosophers of religion. He, uh, he had done a series of books. Well, first he wrote a book about space and time, about physics and f- philosophy of science. And then he had written a series of books uh, discussing arguments for God's existence and defending belief in God and belief in the soul and things like this. Uh, But in 1994, he came out with a book called The Christian God. And in The Christian God, he gave his own interpretation of the standard Trinity language. And and it was in an understandable way (laughs) that you could actually agree or disagree with it. So he interpreted what he thought the councils were up to, what it, what it means to talk about three persons and one being or one usia. And uh, a lot of people read it, including me, and, and I think a couple of grad student friends. And it was really interesting, and it was good to see somebody try to make sense of it all in a really serious way. But a lot of people at the end of the book, including me, thought that it really amounted to tritheism. Because it looks like you had three gods that were related in this interesting way that he sketches out. I and, see. And in fact, the it's unfortunate the picture they chose for the cover is, you know, a medieval manuscript illustration of the Trinity. And it's like three guys sitting on a bench. <laughs> they kind of look like triplets. It's not a very good picture. And... <laughs> Uh, the, then there was a point where I said, well, maybe it is tritheism, but maybe that's right. I mean, why do we have to be so rigid mon- about this monotheism stuff? I wasn't entirely sure what I thought about it. And I started to think, well, there must be a better way. And a couple of other things happened. Around 2000, I started reading other work that was being done by leading Christian philosophers like Brian Leftow who's now at Oxford, and my former teacher, Stephen T. Davis, now wow. retired from Claremont, one of, the, one of the Claremont colleges. I started to read uh, other serious people saying, well, look, if you make this distinction and that distinction, then it comes out consistent or arguably so, and why not that? So they were doing what I now call rational reconstructions of the Trinity language. Philosophers are an inventive and smart bunch, and they sort of throw every distinction, you know, but the kitchen sink at the problem and see if something works. And so for a while I was, I was like, well, surely this has got to work. I mean, God wouldn't let the Christian church go wrong about something like this for so long. So there's something that makes sense here. I just got to find out what it is. So I rolled up my sleeves like a lot of other people and started digging around for that. But uh, also around that time, like just before I left Brown, maybe 1998 or 99, I was rummaging around in the Brown Library, and I found a copy of the great early modern English philosopher Samuel Clark's 
lost classic, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity. So he was this brilliant guy who was a younger protege of Sir Isaac Newton, the Isaac Newton, and uh, was famous for writing some lectures on natural theology, basically defending belief in God in some interesting ways. When he examined the scriptures, he didn't find what he was expecting to find. And so I started to look at that. It took a while to read. I eventually found out that he had been in this big, long controversy in the 17 teens up until the time of his death in the 1730s that involved dozens of people. Naturally, the title of the book got my attention, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, good. Sounds like a very Protestant perspective rather than the traditional doctrine of the Trinity. It was, although he was an Anglican and he wanted to show that his views fit the early Catholic movement. So before Nicaea, people like Origen, Tertullian, uh, and Novation, he wanted he, he incessantly quotes from them and shows that his views are similar to theirs. His interpretations of the Bible are similar to theirs. I realized I was going to have to re-examine the New Testament, really, and revisit what I had thought were just obvious proof texts for the Trinity from the Bible. Now, what was your focus while you were at Brown? Was it the Trinity, or were you studying something else? Oh, no, I was doing core analytic philosophy stuff. So when I first got there, I was more interested in epistemology. Okay. But I started to get sick of that, and uh, a lot of my fellow students were doing that. I ended up working with a couple of really brilliant history of philosophy people. Victor Kasten, who's now at the University of Michigan, who's a brilliant specialist in ancient Greek philosophy of mind and medieval philosophy. And then a guy named James Van Cleve, also super brilliant, super nice guy. He's now at USC in California, and he's basically an early modern philosophy specialist. So you know, mostly things in the late 1600s through the 1700s. Um, and so I, I did a lot of history of philosophy but both with those two, but both of them were also interested in philosophy of religion. So I read all the traditional literature relating to divine foreknowledge and human freedom. And um, Brown didn't have any Christian professors and didn't have any philosophers of religion at the time. And but I think that was good for me. It kind of just forced me to to be independent and to learn whatever I could from everybody that was there. So I had a great great time, no complaints at all. But no, it didn't relate to the Trinity. I, I just was reading that book with a couple of fellow PhD students. Okay, so that book by Samuel Clark really got you thinking about the biblical issues related to the Trinity, I suppose. Did you start looking into alternative theories at that time, or did you just shelve it and keep going forward on your dissertation and what needed to be done there to get a job as a professor? Well, yeah, I didn't have time to pursue it much. And up to the late 90s, other than Swinburne, there wasn't really a lot of good work by analytic philosophers on the whole topic. And honestly, the theologians, most of them don't want to sort it out. They're not that serious about making sense of it. They're happier to just accept unintelligible language or apparently contradictory claims. So the philosophers come along, these Christian philosophers, and they say, no, we want it to be true and something that you can actually believe. 
So to believe it, you have to know what the claims mean. You can't just mouth the words and say, I believe whatever that means. It's supposed to be something that you believe, so it has to be intelligible. Uh, but it's also supposed to be something that's true. <laughs> so <laughs> it's got to be all self-consistent. There can't be any genuine contradictions hiding in there. And uh, those start popping out pretty easily, so it's, it's harder than it sounds. But, you know, there were so many different things to try that in the early 2000s, people were just trying more and more things. I wrote an article, I think, in 2001 that got published in 2002 called The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing. And that was working with Leftow and some other stuff that was done in the 90s. And a lot of people at the time were saying, well, there's a Latin trinity and a social trinity. And the social trinity, you've got three, what I would now call selves. They're, they really are personal beings. And the Latin trinity, you've really got one self with three somethings, three modes or aspects or three ways of interacting with creation. And, and in that paper, I just said, well, wait, they don't, neither one of these works. They both run into really obvious problems. And uh, I presented that paper in 2001 at a, at a philosophy conference in, of all places, Moscow, Russia. <laughs> the Society of Christian Philosophers, thanks to Richard Swinburne, who speaks Russian, because he was trained during the Cold War by the Brit uh, intelligence units. Uh, Richard Swinburne is actually, he converted from Anglicanism to or Eastern Orthodoxy. And wow. He speaks fluent Russian. He got this conference set up with the Orthodox Church and the Society of Christian Philosophers, which is mostly, you know, evangelicals and some Catholics. That was interesting. So I, I presented this paper, The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing, and some people, including the little old Russian ladies that translated it into Russian, said, duh, it's a mystery. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I hadn't discussed that, so that prompted me to read some more about that, and I think that's problematic. What, is it a mystery or a mirage? I mean, is it the sort of thing that the closer you get to it, the more it disappears, or the more detail you get? Or uh, the other analogy I was thinking of was quantum theory, where if you know the location of something, you, you no longer know the speed of it or its velocity, or, and vice versa, like everything is sort of like in flux and impenetrable. And there's a sense in, in which I think a lot of believers in the Trinity want to say that you shouldn't look at it carefully because somehow that's, that's going to de destroy the charm of it. Or there's no point anyhow because it's, you're trying to dissect God here. Right. And that's just absurd anyhow. So there's an incomprehensibility issue as well. In this context, a mystery, sometimes it just means something holy and wonderful. This is the mystery we celebrate on Trinity Sunday, isn't it? Wonder it just means like a great sublime truth. But when you're in the context of a theological argument or discussion, a mystery basically means an obvious problem for my theory, but I, I like this problem. I want to keep it. Right, so you turn it around it, it's if you have a theory and it seems to be inconsistent with itself, that's not good because presumably you want to have a true theory. Right. And if you have a theory with claims that can't be understood, that's not good because what's, what's the point of that? You can't even get your mind around it enough to believe it. So, um, and sometimes it's just, you know, it's bailing out. 
it's parachuting out of the conversation that, oh, we're never going to figure out God. Well, who are these people who believe in God who think we're going to figure out God? Not me, right? Not, mm-hmm. right. not any Christian ever. Uh, God's omniscient, and you're not omniscient, so you're never going to know everything there is to know about God right there. Yeah. Well, I think the hubris lies with those who concocted the Trinitarian formula in the first place. They're attempting to peer behind the veil of the Holy of Holies and describe three persons in one Usia and all, all the rest of the theological baggage that the Trinity has with it. The work has already been done <laughs> to attempt to describe God in this very nuanced kind of way. And I think calling it to question or asking the question, what in the world does this mean? Or is this even a good idea? Is a totally valid pursuit. So let me ask you this. What, what led you next to getting into a Unitarian perspective rather than modalism or subordinationism or binitarianism or just skepticism? Well, I'll, I'll go down that list and I'll tell you what's wrong with all those in a second, but a little more background. So I'm studying all these really clever strategies to make Trinity language come out consistent. Right? They would typically start with the claims that are in the Athanasian Creed and they show how you can derive a contradiction from them, and then they try to figure out how to make how to disrupt that proof, basically, by making certain fancy distinctions. And it seemed to me that none of these clever strategies actually worked. And then I became aware that during the Reformation, some Christians who went back to the sources just didn't find the Trinity there. And some of these people were, you know, people of godly reputation with who were lifelong students of scripture. They weren't like Unitarian Universalists or something. They were pretty admirable people and people I realized that knew the, knew the New Testament better than I did. And so then I realized, I learned from Clark that the New Testament doesn't just say that the Father is divine like the other two, like the Son and the Holy Spirit. Rather, the New Testament identifies the Father with the one God, with Yahweh. And it does it while constantly distinguishing the one God from his son. So Clark makes this point really clearly. Only the father is called the almighty. The father is the one who is Hotheos, the God, capital G God. Only the father is the one true God. And the father is the God of me and the God of the Lord Jesus. It never says they're different persons, but the same being. All right. That's what you would expect that it should say somewhere or imply. But it's a wild anachronism to read that later distinction back into first century writings. So there was a while when I thought, a couple of years maybe, when I thought that Clark's theology could be an orthodox exposition of Trinity language, but then I realized that, no, that's never going to be because his is a Unitarian theology. <laughs> right. there's, no, there's no triune God. There is a divine Son and a divine Holy Spirit uh, who are not divine in quite the same way that the Father is. But there's no triune God in that theology. Yeah, but why, why not the other options? So why not modalism? Classical modalism had the Father, Son, and Spirit being one after the other and right. not overlapping. Like an actor changing his, his clothes in between acts. Right, so then the apologist just points out, you know, Jesus' baptismal scene. You've got Father, Son, and Spirit all active at the same time there. Right. Ha-ha, we busted it, right? Well, sure, but, I mean, it's not even clear that that's what most of the so-called historical modalists were up to. It's, that's actually a desperately unclear subject. And I realize that there's a standard dance that a lot of theologians do, 
And it goes like this. The terms in Greek and Latin that we translate as person didn't always mean person, quote, in the modern sense, like a mind or a self, a, a personal being. Right. But it could rather mean a persona, a way of interacting, a mask that an actor might wear in a play. So I realize some Trinitarians, they have the, quote, persons really just being three ways that God either intrinsically lives or three ways that he interacts with creation or both. So what about that kind of modalism? As a matter of fact, the two most famous and quoted and discussed 20th century Trinitarian theologians, the Reformed Art and the Roman Catholic Karl Rahner, the two Karls, both of them suggested that the term person was misleading precisely because it suggested a personal being, like an individual, you know, an object of personal pronouns. And no, no, there can't be three of those in the one God, otherwise it wouldn't be one God, it'd be like a gang of gods. Right. So they suggested, you know, mode of subsistence or some highfalutin' term. So what's wrong with that? Well, I think the main thing that's wrong with it is that the New Testament really obviously portrays an interpersonal relationship between Jesus and God. Yeah, Gethsemane, he's crying out, not my will, but yours be done, right? That's right. And they cooperate. The son obeys him. The father's proud of his work. The father is, you know, dismayed to see him get horribly killed. John fourteen twenty eight. the father is greater than I. That's a little awkward if they're actually identical. <laughs> That's right. And But even just the fact that they talk to each other, you know, when Jesus is praying or when God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. If the father and son were two modes, this would be like one actor, like putting on different voices or something and having, putting on like a one man <clears throat> show, which you just can't read the new Testament in that way. It's just nonsense to put it really crudely. There are two characters there, not one, right? There's not one in disguise. You know, it's not like the King putting on peasants clothes and then, going out slumming to see how the ordinary people live and then going back to his palace and putting on his robe again. It's, it's not like that. So the modalism in that sense where the three modes are eternal or where they're all essential and intrinsic to God, that won't fly. Um, another reason why it won't fly is that the New Testament makes Jesus our high priest and mediator. So between us and God. So that's got to be a third party. If Jesus is just like God's friendly side, then that's to say that there doesn't need to be a med an intermediary. You remind me of that. Uh, did you see the Lego movie? No. <laughs> Should I? It's, no, it's terrible. <laughs> but uh, I have kids, so I had to see it. But there's this character called Good Cop, Bad Cop, and he's just got two faces on the one head. And when he flips his head around, he's this really tough guy with this typical policeman sunglasses and then on the other side he's like this friendly guy wow and uh you just reminded me of that where you know you have god with two different sides of him and you know there's the wrathful god and then there's the merciful god of love yeah and the the tradition has tilted in that direction i think always and you can find uh, late medieval and early modern artwork that shows basically one head that has three faces on it actually one of the popes outlawed that because it seemed like it was pointing people in a heretical direction. Well, that, that, that's yeah. funny because it seems like as soon as you start saying anything that 
actually makes a claim with respect to the Trinity, you wander off into heresy as soon as you yeah. clarify anything. Yeah, very quickly. There's a weird phenomenon right now with evangelical Protestants, um, places like Dallas Seminary, where they just stoutly insist that there are no good analogies for the Trinity. And not only that, but they're just refusing to give any exposition or any sort of model, any, any interpretation to the language. So if you just say, well, is it three beings, like a family kind of? Nope, that's wrong. Is it just kind of like three aspects of one being or three personalities? Nope, that's wrong. It's three persons in one substance. Yeah, I know, but like, what does it mean? Well, we, we can't really understand what it means. I, I call it negative mysterianism. Yeah, it's apophatic. Yeah, it's, it's a weird kind of stonewalling and just insisting on the language. If you think about it, it's a strange thing for a Protestant to do. Right. If the bishops in the current day came up with some whopper like this that just couldn't be interpreted, Protestants would say, have a nice day, Catholics, have fun with that. Uh, right? We just wouldn't even consider it. But because it happened back then, and because uh, the majority of the reformers ended up going really hardcore Catholic on this question, uh, no, it's, it's sacrosanct. It's something that can't be examined. Well, it can be, just like, look, there was a time when nobody questioned the one bishop system. Right. There was a time when nobody questioned Christian use of images like statues. But, you know, the reformers were right to question those things, the papacy. Yeah. So lead me down the path a little further. What, what happened next for you? So then you asked me about subordinationism. Yep. Uh, now, this is where you have the Father, Son, and Spirit as three divine beings, but two of them are not divine in the same, quite the same way that the Father is. And I took this very seriously because of Samuel Clark, because that's his view. That's a type of Unitarian view. And it's also the view that you see in people like Origen, who's kind of the first great Christian scholar. And I mean, to make a long story short, when I really dug into the New Testament and tried to understand it in its own first century terms... I ended up coming to a different understanding of the text that people think obviously imply that the Holy Spirit is a self, like the Father and the Son, and the text that people think teach that Jesus existed long before his human life and created the cosmos. About bionitarianism, I mean, two gods? You got monotheism in the Bible, so you can have different beings who are called God. You've got that in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, even Satan's called the God of this world if the standard translation is right in Hebrews 1, if it doesn't say that God is your throne, but it says, your throne, O God, is forever, and then later on it says, God, your God, quoting, quoting the psalm in Hebrews 1, then there are two beings who are called God. One of those gods has a God, and the other one doesn't. Yeah, but that's just two uses of a term. That's okay. You know, if you call your boss boss, and you call your immediate manager boss, that's just an ambiguity in the title. You don't, you're not saying that you have two bosses in the same sense. Yeah, you might I even think... call your wife boss. <laughs> right? It, but yeah. it, it's, it's not confusing. And that's not confusing in the biblical context, I think. But that's all consistent with monotheism. Just like a country can have one king or one leader, and yet there can be various people below that king who actually are referred to as leader sometime. Yeah. If you look back at Psalm 45, where that quote originates, 
the referent there is some sort of Davidic king who's getting married. So right. it's obviously not claiming some sort of ontology, uh, or it's not some ontological claim. It's a claim of authority or representation or agency. Basically, the king is being referred to by the term God because he's godlike in some respects, that he has dominion and authority and, in a sense, power, although these, these things are given to him by God. So they were more flexible with God terminology back in those days. So there goes Binitarianism. Why, why not just give up on all of it and say there's too much of a contradiction at the heart of the Christian faith and just go into atheism? Well... It didn't disturb me as much as it does some people that the mainstream had gone astray on this, not not enough to shake my faith. I think I kind of sensed that the Christian faith, the core of it, really is just the kind of message that's preached in Acts, and this doesn't mention a triune God, and it doesn't imply a multi-personal God. And that has been marching along, you know, the whole time. And why, why did God allow it to go astray? I don't know. Why did he allow it to go astray on the papacy or sexual ethics or the authority of bishops? You know, I, and I had come to be an open theist by this point, which is, that's another long story. But uh, maybe, you know, God just lets us mess things up. I mean, why did God let the Jews at one point lose the law of Moses? Why did he let them build up all these traditions around it that tended to distort it and kind of miss the point of it, like Jesus critiques the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I don't know, just because he lets us mess things up, but at the same time, his his hand is there in preserving what's really important. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. I, I think of the prophets the old Hebrew prophets, I mean, over and over again, they get rejected by the king and the people as they're trying to be the voice of God in that situation. And it seems like it seems like the norm is for the uh, God's people to go astray, <laughs> yeah, rather than to uh, get things right and stay on track. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've always had very Protestant views, so I've always looked at look at Roman Catholic tradition as a very mixed bag. There's some wonderful things about it. They got some core things right, but I mean, some of the mistakes are pretty doggone serious. Yeah. So this is just one of those in my view. But when I, when I read the early small C Catholic writers, I do, I do think I'm on their team They're and they're on my team just because they are attempting to, carry on the tradition of the apostles and the teaching of the New Testament. They do that successfully to a large extent, but yeah, I think it's complicated. Yeah, as time goes on, it gets more and more complicated. So I, I want to ask about when other people started to find out about your non-traditional beliefs, how did that affect your life? Well, uh, I was none too eager to come out of the closet. Because um, when I was reading apologetics material in the 90s, I was just dismissing contemptuously any non-Trinitarians. And, well, they must just be like cult members. And so I saw just the kind of hateful, angry contempt that apologists routinely pour on 
non-Trinitarians. To my surprise, I even found some weird flashes of contempt and dismissal from normally even keel, very tolerant Christian philosophers that I won't name. That just This was just, um, it's a matter of group loyalty. You know, if you start to ask questions about this, you must be on the side of uh, liberal theology or, I guess, atheism or something. But you're just not supposed to ask hard questions about the Athanasian Creed. And I had no desire to be the poster boy for <laughs> taking non-Trinitarian theology seriously. And I was still kind of hoping that maybe a Samuel Clark type thing might, might actually turn out to be arguably orthodox. You can read Clark as consistent with Nicaea in 325, but not with Constantinople in 381. And you got to realize I had had no meaningful contact with non-Trinitarian Christians ever. Like I never had any meaningful contact with Jehovah's Witnesses or Biblical Unitarians, Christian monotheists. At some point, I read uh, Buzzard and Hunting's The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound, and I became aware that there were Protestants like that out there, Unitarian Christians, people like the historical people I had discovered who are living Christian lives, who they're not theologically liberal, they don't, you know, reinterpret the miracles in the Bible or things like that. Not counting Jehovah's Witnesses, I started to realize there were people like that today. And at some point, I exchanged a few emails with Sir Anthony Buzzard and ended up uh, finding out about your work. I think I saw a debate that you did and some other things on your ChristianMonotheism.com website. And I uh, eventually ended up going to a conference and met a lot of lovely uh, Christian people there, a conference that uh, Anthony Buzzard's fellowship put on. And, you know, I found that Unitarian Christians are just Protestants. They've scaled back a couple of more Catholic innovations that clash with the Bible. They're just more Reformed than the people nowadays who use the title of Reformed Christians. I'm sure they would love to hear you say that. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes the truth hurts. But I, I'm going to have to answer to Jesus someday for what I know and what I think is right. So I just decided... I know my friends in the Society of Christian Philosophers are not going to like this. I know they're going to think I just somehow betrayed the team. But you have to go with Paul and John and Jesus. You can't go with Catholic tradition when, the, when those clash. Mm -hmm. So then that was the only thing I could do. It seems like there's almost a lot of fear among theologically astute Trinitarians because... They know the weakness of the system, and they know that if they clarify it on the the personhood aspect, then they easily open themselves up to the charge of tritheism, and if they clarify themselves on the substance end, they become modalists, and if they dispense with eternal generation, then there, there are other issues that happen, and, you know, they're just kind of stuck with this doctrinal package that is sort of like just a mess. And for someone to come along and say, hey guys, the emperor's naked. We've all been duped. We've all been tricked. This theory is an accretion, just like so many other accretions that the Protestant Reformation rejected and dug the truth out from underneath, 
this is just like one of those and we missed it and it's time for us to take it seriously and go sola scriptura on this thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, I, it, it's like terrifying as a, a thought, right? Yeah. Protestants are in a really strange spot on this. And I didn't come to think that Trinity theories aren't going to work out because I was some kind of quote rationalist or had some weird methodology. A lot of evangelical friends um, and philosopher friends I have think, well, there's obviously this guy had some, some weird bee in his bonnet, some, some goofy rationalistic assumption that, that led him down this wrong path. No, I absolutely wanted it to work. <laughs> I was not willing to ask the question, does it work? until I had gone down like a dozen dead ends. I was on the team. Like I wasn't brought up in a tradition that said, this is no good. This is non-biblical. This is anti-biblical. I was in a tradition that kind of complacently assumed that this is really, I, I always assumed that everybody that took the Bible seriously was a Trinitarian. Well, I and, think this makes you even more dangerous. And that's because you are a homeboy, a hometown boy, in a sense that you grew up in the tradition, you had the same assumptions, and you've come to see the truth differently on this issue. And so they can't use any of the traditional ad hominem attacks. Oh, you just grew up in a cult, or yeah. you went to some unaccredited university, or you just learned this from this guru over here. I mean, your your story, in a sense, is impervious to all the traditional strategies used to discredit people that are saying what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, the main the main one I get from apologists today is, "You're dumb." <laughs> they don't usually say it like that, but <laughs> that's the <laughs> that that's what they say when they heap contempt on me and say how ridiculous I am and so on. That's so, that's pretty bad. Yeah. After you had discovered this viewpoint and then met other people did you feel very alone or what how did you feel during that period pretty frustrated and uh, isolated i think in some ways in the 90s we had gone to vineyard churches and had a pretty good experience there when we moved to fredonia in 2000 we went to a uh, just a baptist general conference church and there was a lot of people that we liked there but we started getting kind of disillusioned with evangelical church culture for reasons that didn't have anything to do with this issue. And so we started doing house church in 2005. And I think it was around 2005 or 2006, two different times, families that we had been fellowshipping with for months, they realized that you don't think, quote, Jesus is God. And they just walked away like they never even had a proper discussion about it. And that wow. was hurtful. These were friends, and uh, look, we weren't going to force anything on them or condemn them or get in their face and, you know, argue hard with them and make them embarrassed. Like, we were just fellowshipping with them as Christians. And, I mean, one guy said, um, look, but it says, you know, Matthew, the prophecy, that Jesus is God with us, so Jesus is God. That's one of those, you know, divine names where... You name somebody after your God, and then it could be translated as God is with us. Yeah, exactly. And God also there was this us. baby back in the time of Isaiah. <laughs> he wasn't God, but he was called Emmanuel. This, Jesus was the second fulfillment. 
Yeah, I mean, imagine if your name is Elijah, which means my God, Yah. Yeah. Hey, my God, Yah, come over here. It's time for dinner. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? You're claiming to be God? Blasphemer, you know. It's just a name. <laughs> yeah, but that, I mean, we didn't even get much farther than that. You know, maybe we talked about John 1 or something and just purely not not willing to really examine the issue. And I realized that, you know, it's part of the evangelical self-identity that we're the scripture people. Those other people got traditions, but not us, man. We're the scripture people. We base everything on scripture directly, thinking that it's so doesn't make it so, unfortunately. The actual practice is somewhat different. The thing about me personally was I did feel isolated and alone. I was hurt. I was discouraged by people just walking away and breaking fellowship over this. But what I was discovering was all of a sudden the new Testament makes more sense to me now. And so it just strengthened my own faith that uh, there is a coherent theology in the new Testament. And I never thought I was switching gods or uh, anything like that. I was just ceasing to confuse the son of God with God. Right. Let me ask you about trinities.org. When did you start that website and what was your thinking behind it? Because as far as I can tell, you were still in the closet, so to speak, for a while there. Yeah, I just wasn't very loud about it. Um, I started it in 2006 in the summer, I think. And uh, my mission idea at the time was really, why, why is all this interesting discussion by Christian philosophers just hidden? Why, why is it that theologians don't talk about this? Why isn't it that Christians generally don't know about it? So I start out by commenting on, you know, the standard formulas are very ambiguous. I talked about people like William Lane Craig trying to make sense of it all, Brian Leftow, uh, Michael Ray, and just, you know, I want to put this stuff before the public. You know, the, the more I went on, I started to publish more articles where I'm kind of more arguing for a Unitarian view and not just criticizing one of the Trinitarian views. So I started to get more sort of bold, I guess. The mission was to bring, bring some of the scholarship to the people. There's, there's a lot of hiding that goes on. In the theological world, they don't think anything of it. They study a lot of critical Bible scholarship and other things that just they decide to never mention in the pulpit. Even just the idea of your website being called trinities.org yeah. is itself pointing out some, somewhat of an obvious fact to many of us who study this, but that most, especially Protestants, would never admit to, which is that there are multiple formulations, and they can't all be right. That's Yeah, that's right. I mean, people ang angrily ask me why, quote, deny the Trinity. I mean, there is no one doctrine there there is a mandated bunch of language and then you're on your own to make sense of it okay but serious very smart very serious informed people have tried to make sense of it as best they can but then they've come up with as you said things that can't both be true if if somebody's curious about this you know google trinity stanford and see my encyclopedia entry and it sort of classifies the main different approaches and tells you what papers to read the, the thing that blew me away as a philosopher around the early 2000s was in philosophy, we don't ignore the other side. So say I believe in free will. Well, there are philosophers who don't believe in free will. Okay. And this, and this is not what I do. I don't get up in class and tell you that these guys are a bunch of lunkheads and you can pretty much ignore it. 
No, I assign you the student to read those guys. Right. And not the dumb ones, but like the best ones I can find. Who's making a case against free will? Let's read them. Let's hear them make their case. And then let's, let's judge it as best we can. And what's really weird is since American and British Unitarianism imploded on itself in the 1800s, uh, then mainstream academic theologians have more or less just ignored the minority report in the tradition. And they've obfuscated the early Unitarian theology, and they've just sort of written off the modern era Unitarianism as a bunch of rationalism or deism or something. And this is bizarre. You should run to them and find their best representative and put the best arguments that they have on the table and then show what's wrong with those arguments. Right. That's the way of truth-seeking. That's, that's what even atheist philosophers do this habitually. How come they don't do this with... Unitarian versus Trinitarian theology. Well, they should do it, and there was yeah, a, they should. There was a time when they did do it uh, in America between roughly 1780 and 1850. Uh, there was a time when Unitarian and Trinitarian theologians actually had scholarly debates, and some of them are pretty interesting. And I have to say, the Unitarians come out pretty well generally. Right. Well, I think, it, honestly, it goes back, and this is just my hypothesis, but I think it goes back to the fear that this theory is itself, I liken it to an oral tradition taught alongside Scripture, almost like the Mishnah and the Pharisees and how Jesus was constantly having issues with them. And the, the Trinity is this sort of awkward oral tradition passed down. I guess it was a written tradition as well, but that people have to believe in and they can't really understand it or explain it, but they know that it's really important to believe in it. And there, I think there's just a general fear there that someone's going to call them on it. And because of that, the discourse is not rational or at the level that it needs to be, where you have an honest interaction with the other side. Instead, you just have ad hominem attacks. So let's talk about the podcast. What made you want to start a podcast? Goodness, how did I get that idea? I don't know. I just thought it would be a good way to communicate some of this stuff to a wider audience and in a way that's convenient to access. I guess when I started, I had more in mind just presenting a lot of historical and other biblical material, but it's kind of evolved into doing a lot of interviews, which I, I enjoy and always learn a lot from. How many episodes do you have so far? God willing, uh, after we finish talking today, I'm going to finish up uh, episode 149. Wow. So, so that's, what, three years worth of work? Yeah. It's still still going strong. It's a bit tiring. We'll see how long I keep up the weekly schedule, but right. um, I have a rough draft of a plan to keep going through the fall 2016 semester. Nice. Here's another question I had. Who is the woman... In the intro, <laughs> she is just a uh, voiceover person who has a lot of radio experience, and uh, I found her through a certain website, and I just okay. said, "Man, she's she's great at that. I yeah. love that voice." Yeah. And uh, she was wasn't a sure if it was person. your wife or some student. No, or... <laughs> no, she was a delightful person to work with. She did a wonderful job. She just nails everything the first time. Wow. I noticed your website was down for a few days. What what happened there? <laughs> Some kind of hack attack. Some malware got in, I think, through a couple of plugins and took the whole thing down for the count. 
but uh, thank God I managed to uh, restore it from an old copy that the provider had. And uh, because I had been sort of taking a break, I didn't really lose anything. So it's one of the hazards of having a blog. Do you think that you were targeted by malicious Trinitarian apologists? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, malicious uh, Trinitarian apologists are steadfastly ignoring everything I do right now. I think they think that they've got a wonderful big platform and that they don't want to give this evil guy any, uh, any airtime. People like James White. So they uh -huh. pointedly are ignoring, you know, even though I'm publishing stuff in peer-reviewed scholarly venues, and even though I'm, you know, trying to bring some clarity to the subject and interviewing Trinitarians who are serious thinkers, no, no, that, that guy doesn't exist. And I, I think it's because of what you said. It's partly because they don't know what to say most of the time, but it's also partly that th we can't dismiss this guy as, uh, you know, Mormon, JW, rationalist, liberal. No, I'm from your tribe, man. I'm an evangelical. <laughs> A turncoat. That's what they think, yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to winding things down here, where, where do you see the biblical Unitarian movement going in the future, and what suggestions do you have for spreading the word? Well, this is a big subject. I'm not sure where it's going right now. I think there's a couple of big dangers that threaten to keep the movement small. I mean, the one thing you don't want to do is become a self-righteous, condemning sectarian Right. I disagree with people who say that Trinitarians are idolaters. I don't think they're necessarily tritheists. And I don't think they uncritically copied all their theology from the Greeks. Although there was Greek influence, it's complicated. Trinitarians are just more Catholic than you, Mr. Unitarian. And they're typically just confused. If they're evangelicals, they're typically confusing together God and his son. They've, they've just got loyalty to some traditional theories that they think must work out somehow, because why would God allow them to spread as much as he has? That's one of their biggest concerns, you know, call it an argument from divine providence. But you need to realize that they are preaching, in many cases, the core of the gospel, the type of claims that you see in Acts. And I assume this is why God blesses their efforts. And I've been blessed by the efforts of Trinitarians. So... Just because you're right about this, it doesn't follow that you're a very good Christian. <laughs> God, God would rather have 10 humble Trinitarians that are trying to follow Jesus every day and enact his teachings in their daily lives. He'd rather have 10 of those guys than one constantly battling, self-righteous, angry, condemning, doctrine-obsessed Unitarian who's got the correct theology. So don't be that guy. Like, <laughs> if we're that guy, the movement's doomed. I mean, another related set of deadly errors is uh, ditching Paul and going back to law-keeping. Right. But that's another conversation. You, you do see that, though. Uh, you see it a lot. The Trinity came from Greeks and the pagans, and so we just got to get all the pagan stuff out. Well, man, if you're not a Jew, you're, you're, you're from pagan stock. There's a lot of, quote, pagan things in your culture, but the gospel makes all these things clean. Um, that doesn't mean that you can you know, practice idolatry or keep your pagan religion or anything like that. But we need to get off this idea that we need to somehow become Jewish or keep ourselves free of any non-Jewish influences. That's just nonsense. We need to go back and study Paul some more, if that's what we think.
Right now, there's neither Jew nor Greek. If you were to give advice to somebody who is interested in spreading the word about who God is, and they, let's say they're just starting out, they're going to school right now, going to some sort of university, and they're, they're doing what they can to read up on this, and they're interested, how would you advise them to proceed? This calls for faith and trust in God. You're going to have to trust Him to take care of your reputation and your fate and your income. There's kind of no getting around that. Now, about how evangelical institutions are closed off to Unitarians, they are and they aren't. So there are a lot of evangelicals who aren't very sectarian and who probably are Unitarian half of the time anyway. So they think Jesus is God, except, you know, in apologetics context, but then they read the New Testament and they realize that Jesus is someone else. He's talking to God. God's blessing him. God's empowering him. God's, uh, you know, sending him on a mission. So they don't have trouble understanding that, but they don't know how to reconcile the two things. Uh, and they're focused on the small handful of proof texts that people will feed them. But in a lot of evangelical churches, you know, they will tolerate people having different opinions about this. They won't tolerate the sectarian condemning person who wants to just throw down the gauntlet about this all the time. Evangelical institutions, unfortunately, it's part of the theological tradition to train people in intolerance on this. So it's the, it's the old Athanasius model where you just start wickedly abusing people once they want to talk about this subject. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that people have been programmed by evangelical seminaries and particularly the Calvinist strand, they're closed-minded. But uh, ordinary Christians, I've found, are not closed-minded about this. Because you just point out that the Bible's constantly distinguishing Jesus from his God. And, oh yeah, God is God's the Father, Jesus is someone else, Jesus is the Son of God. Is he divine? Well, maybe in some sense. That's, that's a big conversation. You know, any open-minded, Bible-believing Christian can come to that view very easily. Um, they don't have all of the aggressive arguments and uh, excuses that are part of the apologetics tradition that really go back to the, really to the time of Athanasius for the most part, or the claim that it's just supposed to be self-evidently absurd that Jesus is, quote, a mere man. But <sighs> mere man, what does that even mean? That, that means a man, but just a crummy ordinary man? No, he, like, nobody thinks he's that. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's been given the spirit without measure. So there's, there's no easy solution. I mean, as far as talking to people, I find it helpful to ask people questions like, well, what do you think the Trinity is? Or, you know, look at this passage, like, how would you read this? You know, for instance, Jesus says he doesn't know the day and hour of his return, but only the Father does. Do you agree that omniscience is an essential divine attribute? Because then it looks like Jesus has just implied that he's not God. Right. Your ordinary Christian doesn't go through all the jumping jacks and the contortions with the two minds and the two natures and all that. I mean, we can argue about that. It's a serious tradition. It's worth looking into. But yeah, there's no there's no easy solution. But you you definitely need to maintain Christ-like character. If, if getting into theological arguments makes you a person uh, who calls other people a fool, well, Jesus says you're in danger of hell if you're going to go around 
being contemptuous of people like that and getting angry with people like that. So you should do something else. You should take a break from your theological hobby. They need to see Christ-like character or they're not going to ever take your theology seriously. By way of conclusion, what would you say to a layperson who's interested in getting on board and supporting this movement and they're fired up and they want to do something to spread the word today? Well, it's easy to spread the word through social media. There's these great websites, particularly ChristianMonotheism.com, 21stCenturyReformation.com, Trinities, if for the people that want more maybe scholarly angle on it. You also need to meet other Unitarian Christians and fellowship with them. And uh, the big problem facing most people like that is they can't find enough people to fellowship with. There's no Unitarian biblical Unitarian church in their area. And uh, most people think house church is for cults and people who are storing weapons in the basement. So they don't really consider house church as much. That's so funny. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I like it. I think it's a good model for church. You know, yeah, it's, just, you, it's just what the apostles did. I mean, it's no big deal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My advice is, you know, don't be afraid. God uh, is not going to hammer you for coming to a mistaken speculation. You know, he judges by the heart. You know, he will honor your intention to really get to the bottom of what is the apostolic teaching on this question. So don't, you know, don't be afraid and keep learning. Make sure that you're not substituting being right about a doctrinal issue for all the other things that uh, are involved with Christian obedience. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Sean. Before I end this episode, I just wanted to read out a little bit of feedback that Brian left on Offscript episode 13, Should Christians Watch TV? He writes, You each brought up great points, and I really appreciate your transparency during this episode. Growing up Christian, yet taking advantage of grace, I purchased over 500 DVDs, and most were rated R. I thought I was untouchable, but I was wrong and they most certainly affected my life as a follower of Christ. I'm forever grateful that the Holy One, blessed be He, has done a radical change within me, that my old desire to collect and watch horrible films has been replaced with an extreme hunger to collect and read books that allow me to grow in my faith. Again, great discussion, guys. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for leaving that feedback. If you would like to have your voice heard, go on over to restitutio.org, and you can leave a comment there. Also, if it's not too much trouble, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. It helps people to find this podcast and encourages them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. If what you heard today on this episode with Dr. Tuggy piqued your interest, I encourage you to check out his website, trinities.org and to get in touch with them through that. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.